Welcome to Fred Buzz the Podcast. My name is Joe McMurray. And I am Aaron Sefchik. And today we have with us multi-competition winning acoustic fingerstyle guitarist Matt Thomas. Welcome, Matt. Hey, guys. Matt's calling in from uh, about 15 minutes down the road from me. <laughs> um, and I've had the opportunity to see Matt play um, at a show and in person, just like in the, in the room at his house. And... Uh, takes about five ten seconds to realize that this guy is uh not your average guitar player and uh yeah i love i love getting to see you play matt it's inspiring and uh different from what i was brought up learning to play but it's Thanks, man. the direction i want to go well i come from a generation of going and sitting in front of guitar players and just soaking it up and, and trying to bring that experience to people so I'm really honored that I've been able to, you know, find someone like you nearby and uh, get to do something like this. I mean, in my industry, but you're 15 minutes away from my house. So mm-hmm. this, is, true. this is cool, man. Yeah. So um, speaking of sitting and watching <clears throat> guitar players and soaking it in, I got to see that picture when I was at your house. Um, you showed me a picture of you with i think it was tommy emmanuel and um andy mckee mm-hmm. you were like a young teenager it looked like yeah yeah um well i actually um had seen tommy emmanuel back in 2004 at yoder barn and uh that was my first experience of seeing tommy and i just kind of obsessed over it and the next year he heard me play and dragged me up on stage and that just kind of started this whole journey from that point. So um, it, it's been a wild ride, ups mm-hmm. and downs. Um, but you know, it, back then the opportunity to get and hang and sit with Tommy Emanuel was a little different than it is in today's light. Same thing with Andy McKee. Um, I had actually, I was at a harp guitar gathering in Williamsburg, Virginia, and before his YouTube success, he was there with his long rocker hair, hanging out with a harp guitar. So, <laughs> you know, we got to just hang out and play guitar as, as, as two humans that are aiming for something. So it, it was it's a really cool experience. Yeah. And so you, how old were you when you did the harp guitar convention? Uh, I was 18. Okay. And you, you told me that you had learned harp guitar to go to this convention, right? Yeah, yeah. It was the second one that they had ever done. Um, so it, it got a little more attention, and they started putting stuff out in the newspapers and basically trying to get more people interested in the harp guitar. Because the first year that it happened, it was, you know, five or six dudes from around the world that just got together in a hotel room. So mm-hmm. the, the next year, it, it, it doubled in size. So... Um, a family friend of mine just saw it in the newspaper and the day before brought over this harp guitar that he had made. And it just so happened to be the number two, Stephen Bennett Merrill. And it just happened to be fate. The guy handed it to me and said, all right, it's tomorrow. Figure out how to play it and show up. And um, I did. Wow. And I I didn't completely embarrass myself, um, but I had a, I had some fortunate timing that was happening and not, not my playing, but in, in life. Um, I just 
gotten the opportunity to play with Tommy Emmanuel and Stephen Bennett was opening that show. Mm-hmm. So a few months. Explain who Stephen Bennett is for all, our, all of our listeners who aren't savvy to the harp guitar <laughs> world. See, Stephen is the one that really kind of took my heart with the music. You know, Tommy's the, the flash of everything, but Stephen Bennett is this guitar player from Gloucester, Virginia, that um, has a little different approach to fingerstyle music, a little more classical driven, um, but also does a lot of bluegrass stuff. But he is kind of the the godfather, if you will, or harp guitar guru uh, of the world. Even though there's there's players like Michael Hedges mm-hmm. that are much more well known mm-hmm. uh, in the harp guitar, you know, well, not not in the harp guitar world, but in the regular world where people go, oh, harp guitar, yeah, Michael Hedges. Uh, but in the harp guitar world, we go, yeah, Michael played some harp guitar. It, but Stephen has, I mean, days of music. You could just sit there and, and listen to him play harp guitar until your heart's content. Whereas Michael Hedges has a few songs on harp guitar. Uh, it, it was just a short period. Whereas Stephen has just built this catalog of, okay, what can be done? What should be done? And that's what he's done. <laughs> so it, it's been a great, um, it's been a great path to follow and see someone do that. Mm-hmm. So that, yeah. that's where I get my inspiration from. So back to what you were saying about um, Tommy Manuel provided the the flash and yeah, well, and it, you know, t- Tommy had seen the, these same very things in Stephen, so. They teamed up together when Tommy first came to the States and did a bunch of, of concerts on the East Coast together. Um, and not just the East Coast, they 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 went abroad as well. Um, and they were kind of like the sideman thing for a long time. Like You can even find some really cool shtick videos on YouTube of them doing goofy stuff together. Uh, at one point, like Steven was riding a tricycle on stage and <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was funny stuff. It, it was a, a really fun show, but you know, it gave the opportunity for both musicians to, to do something a little different. Um, but I digress. Uh, I just gotten dragged up by Tommy and Steven had seen me and seen that, that moment. And then here I come a few months later walking in to the convention with a harp guitar and he just kind of looked at me and goes, okay, kid, come here. Well, what's going on? So it just um, it kind of just fell right into place, if you will. Seems like everybody was really, really um, open to bringing, you know, bringing in new people and helpful. <clears throat> well, at that time, there wasn't a whole lot of people doing it or they could really figure it out. There wasn't, there wasn't YouTube, (laughs) you know, if you wanted to learn it, you either slowed it down on the record or you saved up your pennies and you bought one of those fancy tab books and hoped that it was right. But a lot of the times they weren't right. So, and you could figure that out as you're playing it and go, that doesn't quite sound or feel right. So you just ditch that and go back to, putting on the headphones and slowing it down again. It's a different world back then. <laughs> and it's changing every every couple months, it seems like. Yeah, that's for sure. You know, the internet has been um, both a blessing and a curse for musicians. Um, 
but it has really changed the ability for a person to pick up the guitar and be satisfied. You know, they can they can do it quickly without having to sit through months of lessons because they can go at their own pace. Yeah. Although the internet stuff tends to leave you, you know, wanting more. It's, I mean, there are very few. It seems like there aren't a whole lot of internet <clears throat> teaching things that have much uh, long term that, that will get you to the next level. You know, it depends on the outlet. Um, to be honest, if you decide to pull up YouTube and go, okay, I want a, a simple lesson on how to play a G chord. Yeah, that's going to get you to a certain point, but they're starting to become these services like jam play. And um, one of my favorite is the gypsy jazz um, school, or maybe it's the gypsy jazz Academy. Yosho Stefan. Yeah. Yeah. I've seen that. Now, Yosho, um, yet again, before the internet was really a thing, uh, I went to the Chet Atkins convention pretty much the same year after I got the harp guitar. And um, Tommy and Steven in invited me out there, and I got to play with them there and, and met Yosho. And that's where I got a lot of my gypsy licks and influence. Um, so it, watching how he was able to regurgitate Django information in such a simplified way was so great because I, I was almost like a, a, an early guinea pig for him. Um, we would sit there until five in the morning, you know, every night and he'd just show me licks back and forth. And um, it was kind of the early days of watching how he was going to dissect and now create this, this whole academy and program. And it's, it's, so tickling to see how well it's done and not just that it, it's one of the the easiest breakdowns of gypsy jazz music i've ever seen it's it's always been this conundrum and so complex and people go oh well you have to do it this way and you have to do this and yosho kind of he bends the rules and breaks them down and goes okay here's where you can break rules and can't um so in a sense there are online tutorials that can be really satisfying. It's just a matter of what are you going to put into it? Are, are, are you going to just go for the free ones or are you going to go for something that the artist has put time into that's a little closer to a pr private lesson? Feel. Mm -hmm. it's, it's very true. I have, I have bought into several things and, <clears throat> you know, I've in the past I've bought into Troy, uh, Troy Grady's cracking the code. Mm -hmm. and, that's a great but, one. Yeah, for like, I think I spent $70 on the Eric Johnson pack and it like, I probably spent a year really digging into that and digesting it. And like, that's not that expensive. And like, considering how much time, hundreds of hours, <laughs> I know, bucks, you know, it's, it's, lesson for an hour to cost like 50, 60 bucks. So yeah, so really, it, it's worth it as long as you go the, the proper route. But you mm -hmm. know, um, Unfortunately, the internet makes it so easy to want the cheaper option. <laughs> and, you know, a lot of times people default to that. But that's okay, too, because there's, there's going to be plenty of other people that will want that experience of paying $5.99 for probably the most incredible lesson you'll ever get. <laughs> yeah. So it's just it's a matter of 
the proper marketing and patience to get there. Another one that I've bought into recently is uh, Adam Rafferty's study with Adam. And we actually had Adam on last week. So if you haven't checked out that episode, check it out. It's a really cool double episode conversation with Adam, who is calling in from Austria. But uh, yeah, I really like Adam does a good job of uh, playing you know, he'll break down. He did all his Michael Jackson tunes and Stevie Wonder tunes. And I've seen you do Stevie Wonder too in a similar way. But, you know, he's got some really in-depth videos and it's a good uh, start in, or in order to learn how to arrange those types of things yourself. It was very helpful for me to, to go through that. Adam has always been a monster player, even before he started playing fingerstyle. Um, I, 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 I was already kind of, you know, established in the fingerstyle world when I saw him start into the fingerstyle world. And I, I was, I was heartbroken after I heard the first video of him because he was so freaking awesome. His, his melody placement is so unique in the fingerstyle community that it changed uh, the approach of how people play. You know, leading up to that, there's just Andy McKee or, you know, Tommy uh, on the internet sort of thing. Um, And you either played with a thumb pick in that way or you didn't play with a thumb pick. And Adam had such a unique touch with the thumb pick that it really helped people go, oh, I can back off. (laughs) <laughs> oh, I, I can have a, a much more, you know, intimate sense of touching the strings that um, doesn't have to be so aggressive. A little hotter gain and more sensitive playing. And, and really that I think is because of his jazz background. Right. You know, it's just he has more of an ensemble approach and sense, whereas sometimes as fingerstyle guitarists, we just lead into it going, this is the moment, <laughs> you know, um, Adam, Adam has a sense of, of, um, of placement that is not typically found with most guitarists. Yeah. Well, yeah. So I definitely, one of my favorite online, um, things that instructional courses you can buy into, um, it's, it's helped me a lot, but, uh, so <clears throat> With your playing, I want to I want to go back to your your playing here. Um, are you one of the interesting things that you've talked about with me? You talked about you don't want to be a uh, thumb slapper on the two and four. Like you don't want to get pushed into only being in that box. Um, so unless the song calls for it. Yeah. Yes. But as a <laughs> player in general, you were talking about how like with the new with all the things that are happening in the modern acoustic finger style style world, you know, you don't want to get boxed into certain habits. Well, you know, a lot of times people have signature sounds or signature things that they do. And I've never really wanted to be defined by one particular technique or one particular thing that I'm always doing. Um, so I've always tried to be very conscious of not being overly repetitious <laughs> in the way that I write music or in the way that I play. Um, and 
that's good and bad because I find myself constantly changing the way I even play my own songs. But that's okay too. You know, a lot of times it's it's a it's a a want to hear something slightly different as a as a composer. I'm trying to find different outlets and different melodies and how they can play with other things. So if, if I lock myself in this slapping 2-4 box, that's essentially what I'm going to have to work around. So, you know, um, before I even start playing the song, I, I don't want it to end up being that feel of the slap on the two and the four. It just, it provides a certain groove and sense. And as a, if you're listening to a band and they have the same gait and rhythm, every song, all the time, it, it becomes monotonous, overly repetitious. And that's things that I, I try to avoid. I want it to, to feel like a different group, each different song. Like, oh, that was, that was a different idea and a different type of thing. And some people will go, okay, well, that sounded like a different style. Well, why did it sound like a different style? Just because I put the emphasis on the one and the three rather than the two and the four. And a lot of times those little simple things can help define what the mood was or is intended of a song. How do you go about putting the emphasis on the one and the three? <clears throat> You, is that by switching your hand position and getting that that kick drum it sound is. on the one? It is. Um, a lot of times with certain gated um, two and four playing, you're sh you're kind of doing the strum, and then the slap will be with your thumb on the strings, or even what Stephen Bennett likes to do and provides a really unique sound on the two and the four is he takes his middle finger. And he actually, he grabs it in the meat of his thumb and will flick forward. So on those two and four beats, instead of having a slap, you actually have this percussive click or, or tick at very close to the, the bridge of the string. So you would actually get that sort of sound versus a slap. Oh, okay. And it, it, it drives the music slightly different. Um, but you know, it doesn't always have to be a slap. Like for instance, um, on certain Irish type rhythms or even um, long groove sections, blues type things, you can feel that there's almost a pulse on the two and the four. Not so much a slap or a, a percussive thing, but there's just this oomph and drive behind it. And what you can do is, is slightly put your palm on the top board as you're playing on those two and fours that help drive this double time feel, okay? And that's what, that's what ends up happening with the action of two and four is it can end up having this dance to where it feels like double time. The moment that you switch that up and hit on one and three, it suddenly feels like half time, especially if you do them back to back. But if you start the song off, on hitting the rhythms on the one and the three, it's a totally different groove section. So you can define those times and break those up between those sections by swapping the two. So can, can you maybe do a little demonstration? Yeah, yeah. so let's see, I'm in, I'm in open C tuning here. 
right. So. See, that's kind of the upbeat. And now that's the one and three. See, and that's kind of the double time feel. Yeah, yeah. Versus. And it's okay. just it's just the difference of where uh -huh. you put the emphasis on those little things, and it's it's really nothing any different than are you hitting the palm on the two and the four, or are you going to hit the palm on the one and the three and add a tap in a different place? So, um, really, this the idea of this kind of playing didn't come about until recent years, you know. Um, Back in the early 2000s, when there was this this Tommy Emmanuel craze and Andy McKee thing, they weren't really doing those types of rhythms on the acoustic guitar. Even when you listen to Michael Hedges, there was slight, you know, hints of it here and there, but it was never as in the forefront as it has been as it is today. You know, and a lot of that comes down to <laughs> two things. Um, as an acoustic guitarist, when you play something in your bedroom, it sounds and feels one way. But then you go on the stage and you try to you show someone, hey, look how cool this is. Look, look what I felt. And then you listen to the PA and you go, that sounds like crap. That's not at all what I remember hearing in my bedroom. I'm not getting that nice oomph that I get from the, the kick of my palm. It sounds nice and, and woody and, and woofy at times, but you know, you, you can hit down at the strings at the same time and you suddenly get this bright splash of color and, and actual chordal on top of that kick. But then you go and you do it in the PA and you hit the guitar and it's just this big fart. <laughs> and you know, um, it, it, it comes down to the evolution of, of pickups you know um one thing that really made tommy emmanuel seem now now n let me change that wording not <laughs> <laughs> because he is by all means the most awesome guitar player of our lifetimes but there was an illusion that was happening because of what mate and guitars had done they had come up uh with this pickup system that just sounded balls to the wall it was so in your face and so loud that it almost sounded like you were in a guitar so um i decided right then and that's what i wanted and that's what i relied on for over a decade was his exact combo of the the maiden guitar and the aer amp and for a while i was even using the same um midi verb 2 rack mount that he uses for Every show, um, he's pretty much sourced and bought all the remaining ones off of eBay at this point and has them in boxes everywhere he goes. Uh, it's just his favorite verb so much so that he teamed up with AER on their newest amp and they patched that verb into his new amps so that he has to, you know, he doesn't have to carry the rack mount anymore. But, but anyways, the combo that AER and the Maiden guitar has this 
this oomph and Adam found it too. And that's, mm -hmm. that's kind of what he does. You know, he, he can really push that gain and just back off on how you play the instrument. Um, and it just sounds so big. Um, but then you get in that moment where Tommy, he goes into Mombasa or, or initiation, not something he does so much anymore, but he get into the, the percussion and that's where it, it become on the verge of, okay, what's about to happen in the room? In the early days, he'd either piss off the sound guy or get pissed off at the sound guy because they'd try to throw a compressor on because it was limiting his signal. It's pushing it, and they're, they're getting worried about their speakers. And, you know, Tommy was, was aware of this and would be careful, but he likes to push the throttle. Mm -hmm. And that became a problem for him for a while and he'd always he'd always have problems with sound guys everywhere he went so he started having designated sound guys that knew those moments and would brace for those moments and, and know what to do with the signal as it's coming in that hot mm -hmm. so inherently if you think about it there's a problem you know not so much with the way he's playing or the guitar itself but and what we're trying to ask of the guitar and the pickup at the same time. Mm. The pickup itself is trying to provide this great big, you know, umphy under saddle sound and a nice clear, clear mic sound. Um, but when you put enough bass behind the mic, it, it just umps too much to the PA. So I decided, well, what if we were to separate those things to where we could get what we want out of each different pickup? And, you know, it's not something that I invented or I came up with. I just, I saw that other people are doing this and using them in certain ways. So it was a matter of going back to the drawing board and going, what do I really want out of these pickups and out of the guitar to get the end result? So, that, that that's where we're at today is suddenly there is only a few options you had a magnetic pickup for your you know your sound hole and most of them were junk um you could get a really good one like the sunrise pickup but that's an investment those were those were very expensive they had a separate preamp box and a lot of times you had to be put on a waiting list because they were just so in demand you couldn't even get it so a lot of people just use the lr bag stuff or you know dimarzio had a few good ones out um but the inversion of them never played well with other pickups so you couldn't really use them together so dimarzio's just went ahead and put an inversion switch directly on the the mag itself and decided well we'll make it real easy and so i started off with that idea and put one of those in the sound hole and it it suddenly opened up the idea that you can put different pickups in different places of the guitar as long as you phase them properly that's what the inversion switch is for yes like, yes yeah. um now it only flips at 180 degrees right there's a, there's um there's this thing called a radial phaser um, 
that once I have lots of money, I'll get one and <laughs> all those things. But you can actually phase align things in 360 to where you can absolutely get it pinpoint where you want it. Wow. Um, That's cool. It, it is. It is really cool and essential for um, bigger instruments like the, like the hard guitar where, you know, you might be putting pickups in different spots of the top board that are really far away from other ones. You want to make sure that they they are um, phase aligned properly, or else they they have these spots where they cancel each other out. It it'll just it'll feel like nothing's quite there. You you just kind of lost lost your oomph, so right. to speak. Yeah. So you know uh, the Mag pickup is what is best for running effects and and things like that for an acoustic guitar because it provides you a, a clear signal. Um, it, a lot of times there's not body tones or taps. It's not microphonic. So it is pretty much just like an electric guitar pickup. It is. It is just a magnetic pickup and it will send you said frequency noise. <laughs> so if you're using octave dividers or delays or even really shimmery reverbs that require require some sort of note foundation to put an octave or some sort of interval somewhere, your best option is going to be using a mag for that so that it's not sending overtones. Right. So uh, what I found was transducing pickups um, and things like that they send a more complex sound, which is what you want to hear if you're relying on it as a standalone. But if you're trying to put effects and things behind it to color the sound, a lot of times you end up with this odd color or this weird frequency in the PA that you can't quite figure out what it is. And it's just a, it's a, a dominant frequency um, that's happening from a transducer pickup. And it just doesn't display well. So, you know, a lot of times on stages and stuff, soundmen will keep reverb out of the monitors so that the vocal mics don't pick them up because reverbs and delays have weird, unnatural feedbacks. So one of the, one of the ways that I, you know, try to avoid any weird feedback is by putting things where they're supposed to be. And that's one of the simple ways of doing that. Um, putting your, your good delays and stuff like that on a mag type signal out of the output of the guitar. So, you know, um, the Maiden pickup is so great at what it does. Uh, I didn't want to lose that, but I didn't want to have Tommy's sound anymore. And no matter what, if you play a Maiden guitar through an AER, it has this Tommy flavor, you know, even Adam Rafferty is unique of a player as he is. If you were to just put on headphones and hear a, a small snippet of him just grooving, you know, you probably wouldn't be able to tell who it is. If, unless there was actual note or melody foundation, you go, Oh yeah, that's, that's one of Adam's melodies. But the tone of the instrument alone just sounds and is so unique to what Tommy has presented. It's hard to move away from that. How soon did how, how long ago did you make the switch from the Maiden? Um, to the well, you know, I I 
I played on that for over a decade. Right. Um, and it wasn't until I recorded my album and started working with this lady, Kim Person. Um, now, Kim Person has recorded all of Stephen Bennett's albums. And the moment Tommy Emanuel heard Stephen's albums, um, he pulled, pulled him aside and said, I need that sound. I want that sound. And that's when Tommy Emanuel sought out Kim Person and they recorded Endless Road. And that was a, a very unique start to his success. His sound in the studio drastically changed um, for the better, obviously. But I, I kind of got that experience as well and went, okay, I, I now know what I want the acoustic guitar to sound like. But then, you know, Kim would come to my shows and go, you know, it sounds nothing like you. It, it, the guitar is just not working for you anymore. So luckily, um, I, I won a, a really nice Larvae at, at uh, the Winfield International Fingerstyle Competition in Kansas. And it was just a, it was a great foundation to start building this idea so we just had a great canvas to start from and went okay how can we make a mate and killer <laughs> you know um i i love and respect by all means the maiden guitars uh and and what they've done for the industry and for players you know the ability to pick it up and play live and sound good that that was something i relied on for a long time and was very proud of um that it is. It's a plug-and-play monster. And, you know, I kick myself all the time for going, why did I sell it? Why? But, you know, um, it, it does – it puts you in a box. It puts you in a certain box. And, and I wanted to move in a direction of, of uniqueness and sound that I had in my head sort of thing. So Kim said, you know, there's, there's great pickups out there that, that do these things. We just got to – figure out what it is you want so and that's that's when i went okay let, let's let's dive down the rabbit hole i'll, I'll drink the kool-aid and um that's that's what ended up happening kim has been the ultimate source for the best acoustic knowledge or musical knowledge in general um that i could have ever asked for she's been my guardian angel in all of this so um thank her for all of it but um in in the studio like what are some of the things that she does that like i i was recording myself somewhat <laughs> recently and you know i was experimenting with different places to put multiple different microphones like what are some of the things that you wouldn't get in trouble <laughs> telling us about <laughs> that she does she's attentive okay that's that's something that was really unique is you know when I went and sat in the room and started playing, she didn't walk in, set microphones down. Um, the microphones were already there, obviously, but she went and sat in front of me and listened to what it was I was doing and trying to achieve out of the instrument. And she decided the best way to record it, the best room of hers, because she has several different rooms of different sizes that provide different room verbs just mm -hmm. in general there's room size matters in the mood of the song so 
you, you just need to know how much space is out there sort of thing. So um, her, her intuition is very great because she herself is a guitarist and a great one. Um, what started her old journey in this was her frustrations in the way everybody was recording it and the way that the acoustic guitar sounded. So she wanted to change that. She, and she has, she, she found a way to really just make the acoustic guitar sound like an acoustic guitar on a record, just like you're right in front of it. Um, and there's a lot of unique things that she does to make that happen. Um, again, a lot of it is the gear. She's worked at um, getting some of the best gear that there is. And because of who she is, um, people want her to have the best of their gear as well. So a, a lot of the stuff that she has are hand-built items that you can't get. Um, like I, I, I love the pendulum products. They have some of the best tube compressors in the world, um, and, and rack mounts and preamps. Uh, but you know, unfortunately Greg is no longer making products. So if you want a pendulum product, you got to get a used one or a refurbed one from somewhere. But even at that, the one that he built for her, her compressors are just so unique. Um, they have a presence of their own and she knows how to make them speak. You know, um, she finds a way and at least she kind of, she has this way of making it seem like everything she does is with intent and, and purpose. Um, so she, every piece of gear she has a, a relationship with and knows that piece of gear and what it does, why it does it. And watching that process of seeing someone just I don't get something and then use it. Why, why, why do that? What's the purpose of doing that? And that's, that's what most humans do. I get a guitar, I play it. Why, why did I get that guitar? What is it about that guitar? That process of overanalyzing things uh, I got from her and I love it. It, it provides a little bit of purpose at times where you go, why am I doing these things? Why do I have all these pedals? I know why I have all, all these pedals. Each one has their own freaking purpose, not because it goes do-do-do or it has a blue light, you know. Um, <laughs> um, so Kim has just a way of not only making you play better, but making you want to play better. And that's something that, and working with other people in the past, like um, my first album that I tried to record was at Full Sail University. Um, years ago, after first run of competitions, I had an offer to go down and I traded uh, some kind of like clinics there for a free album. And it turned out really bad. It turned out really bad. And it had nothing to do with the playing. The playing, I thought, was great. But it, it just sounded like it was recorded in somebody's bathroom down the hall. You know, it was just the quality of it was everything that I didn't want. And it was it was a lesson in life. And it, it scared me. Um, you know, Stephen Bennett had sat me down early on and went, you know, you got to be careful about what you do and what you put out to the world. Because, you know, if you make a record, or if you record a video and you put that down, 
that's a historical document. That's a moment in time. From here forth, that is, that's what you were. And I'm upset because I, at that time and place, it sounded like I, that's what I was. And that's not, <laughs> it's not at all what I wanted to be. But, you know, it was a lesson. Uh, and I, I learned <laughs> in a bad way, but for the better. You were you ever able to re-record any of that? Uh, yeah, and some of the songs I intentionally re-recorded on on the new, well, my true album, Man on the Moon, uh, the one with Kim Burson, the only one that will be available. <laughs> the last one I redacted for many availability, so burned them all to the ground. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you can get that album on it's on iTunes yeah. and everywhere else. It's got a great uh, as long as iTunes here. is still here. Um true. And I yeah, they just made that announcement this past week. Yep. Bye bye. Yep. So what's gonna um, happen to all my music? That's what I like. They has there has to it, be some way to it, play my music still. Oh, no, it's still it's still it, in it's yeah. still in the interweb. Don't yeah. worry. Your it's, music's it's, never going anywhere. It's yeah. all it'll always be there. It's just rebranding. They're getting rid of the, the name iTunes and going to Apple Music. Apple Music, yeah. Uh, it's it's their it's their streaming platform that has generated the most success for them as of recent. Uh, iTunes is a thing of the past. You open up iTunes to update your apps. You don't open up iTunes to actually get music anymore. Right. Most people are are just downloading it from Spotify. Um, or is Rhapsody a thing? Or is that is did it go back to Napster now? <laughs> I don't. I don't. I see. There's so many different forms of these now. Um, and unfortunately, it's like how do how do you get to them? Oh. You could do TuneCore, you could do CD Baby, um, and you can jump on those kind of things that as as an independent artist or, you know, a small fish, for a long time, the world, the music world sucked for you until CD Baby. Suddenly, this was like, this was your big brother coming to bat for you, you know. Yeah. The little guy can make it for once. And for a short window in history, that was possible. Um, but that's changing now. Um, CD Baby was bought out. It is. It's going to change. A lot of a lot of things are going to change. Um, and also, I want to I want to urge everybody to to do some research. Uh, I'm not entirely certain on this, but I just heard word that you might have signed away. I might have signed away my publishing rights by even being with CD Baby. Um, it's, it's one of those little things that are in the fine print that as these distributors, they're doing to, to take small percentages from, from your, your stuff, which is okay. Cause you know, a record company, they do that anyways. That's, that's kind of what they did. They, they take your stuff and they pay you a percentage out, yeah. uh, but they would take on the load of promoting it and, and doing the back end of everything, which in a sense, that's what CD Baby did. They they put your music out to people. They put it on these platforms for you, and they they did it. So in return, they get a they they get a cut of what you have. Um, but unfortunately, there's just so much saturation there now because it, the availability was so easy that now things are just getting lumped and filed together. Um, unfortunately, I waited 
a little too long to jump on it. And when I did get on CD Baby, there was plenty of other Matt Thomases that were on there. So they just went, okay, Matt Thomas, you're already here. We'll just put you over there with all your other stuff. And that's what happened was I was filed under somebody else and all my stuff was being sent there. So I, I had to go through months of uh, battling with CD Baby and then the other partners, whoever they put it to, Spotify or whatever streaming service, and going, hey, I need you to undo me and redo me as me and not as the same person. I'm actually, I'm not that Matt Thomas. I'm this Matt Thomas. And they went, oh, well, what's the difference? oh god so unfortunately there there it's both a blessing and a curse what this this internet thing has been so um it's going to change again and that's okay just keeping an eye on the way the industry changes um and being on the forefront of, of the change and being willing to change Yep. is a key thing uh for a long time i wasn't willing to change i was real stubborn and this is who i am this is what i've done for so long i'm going to continue doing it but you know the world changes and so does your music sometimes you got to change with it very true yeah so you know there's songs that i i wrote 10 years ago that i wouldn't dare try to play now just because i know that my playing style or my abilities my muscle memory has changed and you can do damage <laughs> don't don't hurt yourself trying to be what you once were <laughs> emily yeah <laughs> physically that's starting to that starts to happen to all of us too i mean like it, overall it, it really does certain playing styles and types of things can be really really wearing on on your muscles so um, making sure that you, if you do decide to make it a living or a lifetime career type thing, um, practicing properly um, is a key thing. It is a workout and it is, there's never a positive uh, direction you can go when you sit down to, to practice and play. There, there's always going to be some sort of negative breakdown of muscle tissue yeah and you can get positive energy in your brain but it's it, every time you sit down you're exhausting energy so you need to be aware of the energy output that you have and what you can take back in or sometimes overplaying and playing too much is really bad for you um you, you can do damage on your hands and your nerves and things like that so that, that oh, is that always scares me i you know i try to take a break every like hour and a half while i'm practicing because i like i do get there are times where i'm like man like i can the other day i had like a twitch in my forearm after a pretty long day <laughs> mostly acoustic guitar and i was like man i probably need to well, lay off for a few, you know a few hours here i've been playing obsessively for so long um that i didn't realize these things until too late sort of thing um i when i first saw tommy i actually i broke my wrist and 
ended up getting put in a cast on my left hand, but I was hooked. I was obsessed. So I sat there, I cut out a portion of the cast, and I, I played in proper position, but I obsessed and I played. And it started a habit of obsession and playing. And then about 10 years in, I noticed in the mornings, especially, I just can't feel anything in my left hand, period, from, from the wrist up. It's just numb. So, and on, it's unfortunate, but it just made me aware that I need to be more cautious about how I'm going about practicing. Um, so in the mornings I do proper stretches and, you know, try to wake my body up before I just sit right down and jam out because it's damage. You wouldn't, you wouldn't dare go to the hit football field and just run into a dead sprint. <laughs> yeah, I know I would fall down in a complete crippled manner and cry like a baby and all sorts of cramps at this point in my life. So I, I try to try to treat the guitar the same way. If I'm going to sit down and, and play like I know that I want to, I'm going to stretch every digit. I'm, I'm going to make sure that I'm good and ready to go before I, I go to battle on the instrument sort of thing. On average, Matt, how many hours a day do you practice? Um, that is a, a really confusing question that has always been a thing. I, there's no set time. Right, right. Um, you know, it really depends on the internal combustion engine. What's happening in here? Mm. Uh, there will be times where you sit down, you you know, you need to practice. You just don't want to. Sometimes you just don't need to. And that's those are the moments that I decide, okay, I put it down. Um, I, I've gone weeks without playing and been okay with it because now I try to seek the moments. If it's, if it's a moment where I'm trying to write a song, you can just feel those moments where something good's going to come out. And you, you'll run to the instrument, and those are the moments to get it out. Um, but if it's just a daily practice thing, um, I will just pick up the guitar uh, once I'm good and warmed up throughout the day um, and run through a few scales um, just to calibrate, if you will, yep. because depending on the instrument you pick up, um, no guitar has the same string spacing, <laughs> not with proportions unless you bought them all by the same maker and order them that way so adjusting to where you're playing if you're on the left leg the right leg just getting acquainted each day is something that i try to do go okay get the dust out that's good and if there's nothing to be had there then put it down don't don't do damage um but not everybody's that way sometimes they they want to try to seek uh, and find a song, but to me, I feel like you you gotta live the song or live an experience, and that's usually what will help drive a song. So very, very little do I ever just come up with something new out of the blue just because I've been sitting here. That's not kind of how it works. It usually takes an emotion, it takes an event, it takes something that's happened to you or to somebody else or you know maybe it's something that's not happened at all something that should have happened 
<laughs> these these kind of things they're not things that you can plan or that you can sit down and make happen um so being intuitive something that kim taught me <laughs> but you don't like have like sit down and you know arrange or learn new songs and work on technical skills and I mean, not on a not on a set schedule path. yeah but you know that comes down to um, a matter of, of want and necessity. Um, when you first start playing and you first start getting into the arranging or finger style thing, you go crazy. I can't, I, I at one point, I, I probably had 50 or 60 Beatles arrangements um, just because I needed to. I needed to dissect great songwriting and go, what, what made this so great? And, and, you know, Beatles music is one of the best foundations for finger style guitar, in my opinion. You know, Steven has done like, what, three whole Beatles albums now. And uh, Tommy, that's his go-to thing. A lot of people. It's just, it's great. It's great individual parts that lead into what is songwriting. There you go. There you go. <laughs> That's exactly what I book. mean, you know. <laughs> finger, finger picking Beatles by Hal Hal Leonard. That's that's what I'm talking about, and you know, Chet had one of Chet's biggest, uh, Chet Atkins' biggest albums was his Beatles one. So that kind of obsession is great, and will get you started and off the ground. Um, but those are tools, right? Those are tools, uh, or you know, for different reasons, you can. You can use it to make money, go to gigs, play play at bars, do stuff like that, play stuff that people know. Um, and that's that's one side of what it does for you. But the other side is it puts you in the head of the composer. When you dissect something in that manner, you go, okay, I know the foundation, I know the middle parts, I know the melodies, I know what now makes this song. So that action in itself of dissection as a musician turns you into a fingerstyle guitarist all of a sudden. No, I, I never wanted to be a fingerstyle guitarist. That's not what I consider myself. I, I want to be a composer. That's, that's what I seek. Um, when I write music, I don't go, hey, listen to this guitar thing. I listen to this idea or this song that I have. And it's, I try to transcend the idea of that it's a guitar. I've never wanted it to just be a guitar. You know, I try to approach it a little more like a piano in that sense. But that, you know, that's, it's not just me. That's the fingerstyle world. That's what we do. That's cool. You know, you guys, oh, sorry, go ahead. Well, it, I, I want to kind of shift into with the new age thing has done, you know. Um, there's a lot of players that have taken the guitar into this more percussive fingerstyle and EDM type direction. Um, like Alexander Misko. Um, you know, he's got this song that he calls Dubstep Guitar, where you know, he uses all kinds of cool effects and nasty sounds that the guitar could make, where you you tune a string real low and you slightly mute it with the corner of one finger and it, it buzzes, but it, it sounds like a synth bass thing. Um, so finding 
little tricks and things to compose with your instrument um, is what we are seeking. But the, the, the idea of making music that transcends guitar is what we're aiming for. So Misco has got this really cool EDM type vibe. So it, it's almost like dance music that happens. And there's another guy that's like that, um, maybe not as effect driven, but in his playing. And that's Adrian Ballou. Oh. Adrian is a pure monster yeah. on the instrument. And, you know, his, his sense of rhythm is very different than I've heard out of most players. Uh, and then let's go over to the middle of the world. Well, I guess perspective. Let's just Europe. Let's not yeah. call it the middle. <laughs> We're in a circle, I guess, you know. Um, Petri Seriola. Yeah, we were talking about him with um, with Adam Rafferty. Um, he he's the man. He's he's been he's been a very big inspiration to me in the past probably three or four years. Um, I mean, before that, I I remember seeing videos of him when he was playing like Prime, when he still had hair and was in a suit and playing a Larave. Um, but you know. You, you hear the frustrations. He was trying to do percussive guitar and the pickup system. It, it just wasn't working for him. And then he disappeared for many years and suddenly came back into the, the light. And he was doing this multi-sourcing pickup thing and a bunch of different pedals. And I was just kind of getting the idea of the multi-sourcing thing. And I was looking at his pedal rig and going, oh, I like that idea. So I kind of I dove down that route and um, the way instead of taking all these pickups and putting them into the same source, separating each individual one and then putting them to a mixer. So I, I kind of copied that idea for a while and used the same mixer that he did, but I ended up adding too much stuff and ran out of channels. So I, I found a way to simplify um, using a digital mixer and and relying on things like a TRS input that <laughs> newer mixtures they have. So if you're running true stereo out of your pedals, that sucks for cable work, man. That, that becomes heavy and lots of cables. But um, the TouchMix QSC made it so that you could just take all your stereo routing and just go in TRS. And it God, made it so much easier. So... I started chatting with Petri and I said, hey, man, uh, check this out. And he loved the idea so much that he he actually borrowed that idea from me and has been doing that. And also, uh, Alexander Misko liked it so much. He's doing it, too. So it's like it's not a new thing or, or you know, uh, a unique one person's doing it. We're all kind of looking at what each other's doing and going, OK, the direction's heading where we're wanting it. So how, how can we do this together? Yeah. And, and you know, there's been a lot of uh-ohs and we, we all find s similar things and issues with certain types of pickups. Um, you know, the K&Ks are great, but they um, they have this mid-range to them that as, as, as a standalone pickup, it sounds wonderful. But when you try to incorporate it with other ones, there's an interesting mid-range there that you gotta dial out that, you know, not everybody knows about, but just talking on these forums and 
saying, hey, I, every time I plug in, I got this issue. Well, dial out such and such. So really the, the internet has really helped in bringing together ideas with each other to make a, a better direction for a sound. And that is where we're going to leave it for today. I know. Join us next Thursday for part two with Matt Thomas. If you haven't already, don't forget to subscribe. The best thing that you could do for us would be to share. Get the word out about Fret Buzz, the podcast. Other than that, we've got some really good guests on the way. Uh, Things are going to be changing a little bit for Fret Buzz, the podcast, in terms of the video Unfortunately, Google is about to terminate Hangouts. Oh, Google. (laughs) But I think I found a workaround and we'll see what we can do. Uh, Things might be getting a little bit more interesting. And of course, once we have toys in our hands, it always becomes a little more fun. But nonetheless, yeah, let's see. What else do we have here? Uh, Joe is getting ready for his big move to Hawaii. Um... If you have any questions, send them my way at Aaron at fretbuzzthepodcast.com. Let me know how we're doing. Let me know if you have any potential guests or guests that you think would be interesting for the show. Um, Really, ladies and gentlemen, we're shooting in the dark here. Let us know what you like, what you don't like, uh, guests that you've enjoyed, maybe guests that you would like to have on again, or... Maybe you have some ideas of guests that you think would be great for the show or ideas or concepts for the show. We're open to pretty much anything when it comes to music. As you can see by by our track record. I know you are listening. So yeah, drop me a line. Let me know. It's time to shut it down. You have yourself a wonderful week. And Joe and I will see you next Thursday for part two with Matt Thomas on Fret Buzz, the podcast. <laughs> <laughs>